Welcome back to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Whether you work for a team on the field, the ice, a court, track, or a diamond, our association gives you an opportunity to grow. You're listening to episode number nine, part three. Will the new normal just become the normal? With your host, Lester Munson, a member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Alongside Lester is Greg Clifton, another member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Sit back and enjoy this episode of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Welcome to the third of three installments of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. We have devoted these podcasts to the difficulties that have come upon the sports industry as the result of the pandemic and the COVID-19 virus. Uh, This will be our final stage, and today we will address the possibilities of trying to return to some semblance of normal as the epidemic begins to wane as we in America try to return to what uh, we viewed as a normal life. Sports, of course, is a part of our national culture. It's a core element of what we do here in this country. And one of the great signs of normalcy would be a return to some semblance of the sports we have all enjoyed. Our guest is Greg Clifton. He is a sports attorney, a specialist who has worked uh, throughout the industry. He once worked for Bob Wolf, the legendary agent. He has been on both sides, management and labor in Major League Baseball. He uh, has also played a little basketball in his youth at Harvard and is one of the nation's leading sports lawyers. So we are fortunate to have him uh, in this series of podcasts. Recently, uh, Anthony Fauci, the leading authority on this pandemic, was interviewed by Ken Belson, NFL writer at the New York Times, and he suggested that it was the virus that would decide how quickly we will return to normal. He suggested that there had to be testing, there had to be isolation of players. He was actually pessimistic about trying to get sports back to where we would like to have them. Greg, what do you see as the prognosis here? Is there a way back for the sports industry? How long is it going to take? I think that's the real challenge, Lester. And again, thank you for uh, the opportunity to speak with you today. I think we've seen this, and, and Dr. Fauci is obviously speaking from his experience as a physician and having been dealing with this pandemic from the very beginning and advising our nation as we've been trying to deal with the challenges that continue to arise. I think one of the things that we can see and that Dr. Fauci's words are being taken quite literally is how all the sports are reacting to it currently. Uh, It seems like there doesn't go a 24-hour period with an update from one of the leagues uh, and talking about getting back to some type of normalcy. Uh, You know, we've seen, it's interesting, we've seen the Professional Bull Riders Association last week have their first competition uh, with no fans in the stands and everyone respecting social distancing by staying in RVs and limiting contact with one another. And and from what I understand, that was successful, and we'll have to see how that goes over the next week or so after a 14-day period to see if there was any transmission of the COVID-19 virus to anyone. But we've also seen NASCAR now announce they're coming back with some races in May. Uh, it's starting in Darlington, a very historic racetrack. 
They're going to be limiting the pit crews to a certain degree. And again, there'll be no fans in the stands. And uh, as we've talked about before, the PGA is now going to come back with the Colonial in Dallas-Fort Worth um, in June, similarly with no fans in attendance and again, yet to be announced restrictions. Now, the one thing when we talk about the team sports, which is going to be very interesting, Lester, and we've seen some of this back and forth over the last day or two, is now the unions are going to be getting involved a little bit more and the players themselves are going to be getting involved a little bit more. As the league sort of discussed and, and preliminarily announced some potential plans for locations, remote locations and quarantining and different things, the one thing that has to be taken into account are the participants, in this case, the star athletes, willing to go through that process and potentially move away from their homes and living in a quarantine environment for an extended period of time and potentially as long as three or four months. It seems as though, reading between the lines, we are getting some pushback from the unions and from the players in particular. I know yesterday there was a conference call among the NHL representatives with some of the Players Association representatives that had as many as five players on the call. Well, those specific players are, from what I've been told, rejecting some of these ideas of going to remote locations and playing. So not only is Dr. Fauci going to be watched in terms of his goals of trying to bring sports back slowly. I think the leagues and the unions and the players themselves are going to be very interesting to watch because, again, taking it from a concept and putting it into action and how this is going to take place is going to be interesting. Now, the one sport we did hear about in the last 24 to 48 hours is the NBA. And again, right now, their goal they're talking about is potentially to do something down in Florida at the Disney World location, which is nearly 300 acres with approximately 5,000 hotel rooms. So they could almost create a quarantine city there, perhaps even better than Las Vegas, where literally they would limit the people who could come onto the property. So again, this issue of social distancing and all the things that Dr. Fauci is talking about are certainly being in, in, sort of invested in these discussions uh, as the leagues are trying to talk about resuming some sense of normalcy. It is interesting to contemplate the idea of isolating teams and playing games, let's say, in the ballparks in Arizona or playing professional basketball at Disney World. At the same time, there are a lot of other people, in addition to the athletes, who would have to be tested, would have to be retested. And until we find a reliable and an efficient test, that is going to be very difficult. Dr. Fauci seem to think that all of these ideas of putting the teams together in an isolated area in a quarantine were dependent upon finding a good test. So if that comes along, then maybe uh, something good can happen. It is interesting to me that the PGA has undertaken this. I can't imagine a better place for social distancing than a golf course, but as somebody who has been in press tents at those tournaments, uh, something would have to change there because we sit next to each other on those tables, you know, watching the events on TV, um, and you couldn't be more compressed. So there, there have to be adjustments made by, by the media, by the supporting staff, and by the athletes before any of this can happen. That's a great, it's a great point, Lester. If I could just add to that, uh, you know, especially with the PGA, one of the the, the leaders of the Sports Lawyers Association, Bobby Hacker, and I have been talking, and one of the great points that he mentioned was if you look at a television broadcast of a PGA event, like with most events, and sometimes you'll get an inside look at that on television, where they'll show you all the producers, the 
the various directors and assistants that are essentially housed in trailers or in small units, those individuals are also represented by unions. And again, the, the impact of the unions in terms of agreeing and trying to come up with some idea of how to socially distance and protect their members, no different than the players associations and protecting their members, are a couple issues that are going to really have to be thought out and dealt with uh, prior to the resumption of these events. Uh, and again, no one can fault the unions. They're there to protect their individual employee members. So again, these are issues that are going to have to be addressed and dealt with. In addition to bargaining between the unions and the team owners, we have the civil authorities. Here in Chicago, we have a governor of the state of Illinois and a mayor of Chicago who have now extended the shutdown order through the end of May. I don't think the Chicago teams or the leagues to defy those orders, even though they may have some dubious legal standing. My guess is the industry will refrain from any kind of challenge to the civil authorities as they deal with this. I think you're 100% right, Lester. I don't think any of the professional leagues want to get into a a verbal battle or a legal battle in an effort to try and bring their sports back. I think they're going to take the guidance. You know, there's a number of states uh, that are still dealing with uh, escalating numbers when it comes to diagnoses and unfortunately uh, to deaths. You know, you look at New York, which seems to have plateaued a little bit, and you look at Massachusetts, which is still skyrocketing in other states around the country. We have seen a few states, obviously from governmental perspective, start to relax some of these restrictions and limitations. We've seen Georgia do it. We're seeing Texas do it a little bit. So again, I think the sports world is going to be taking the lead from the political folks, whether they be state, meaning governors, or whether they be more local authorities like mayors or whatever, uh, to really take guidance from them uh, as they, again, try to reopen the sports world and whether or not they can do it in a way, which I think right now is there's a pretty much a strong consensus, which at least initially will be without fans when and if they are able to reopen the leagues this year. Yes, I think that as incredible as it seems, as unthinkable as it may be, this whole thing will gradually progress and at the very beginning will be without fans. We have thoroughbred racetracks, uh, Arkansas Downs as one example, racing horses without any fans in the stands. It, it's, uh, it's a surreal prospect. Now, Greg, you've been on both sides in Major League Baseball, can you envision the owners and the players coming to an agreement that would lead to games in neutral sites with isolating the players and testing and all of that? Is that something that the two sides could ever agree on? I, you know, I, I never say things are not possible. I do think there are going to be some major challenges. Perhaps some people might think there'll be insurmountable challenges. But I do think with both parties really wanting to get back on the field, I think it's going to force both sides to put their heads together and try and think this thing tr through. You know, one of the other angles that has come up uh, lately, uh, Lester, has been whether or not players would be willing to take a lower or an additional pay cut from already the April and May cuts that they've agreed to. Because if they resume play without fans, the owner's perspective is we're going to be losing out on a great deal of revenue and we're not going to be able to continue to pay the salaries that we had contracted to based upon this loss of revenue. Certainly from the flip side, the Players Association and the individual players are going to resist that as strongly as they can to the point where 
they do not want to lose any of the revenue and any of the dollars that they've been guaranteed in those contracts. So that's going to be a major issue, as well as the issue of remote locations. Uh, I think a number of the teams now are expressing some desire and how this would work, we don't know yet, to not have remote locations, perhaps to house the teams at their regular facilities. And again, that gets back to, I think, a lot bigger and broader issues, uh, again, based upon individual states, governor's edicts, local mayor uh, type law and, and, and executive orders, and potentially violating those. So I think we have a lot of that still going on behind the scenes. And, and the one thing I have to commend uh, Commissioner Manford and the Major League people working in his office is always open, being very creative, trying to do whatever they can do to reassure the fans that they're going to do everything possible to get back on the playing field. The one thing that others keeps coming up as well is how many games do you have to have to have a legitimate season? And I, and I think the consensus has to be at least half a season. We have to have at least 80 or 90 games to make it legitimate season. And that being the case, that would, I think, lead us to having to get back on the playing field sometime around July 4th or give and take in that period of time. So that still gives us a couple of months to see how the, the virus is going to hopefully not become eradicated, but certainly be reduced and the impact of it being reduced. At the same point, trying to get the players back in training camp and getting back in shape. Because I think the one other thing that both parties agree on and the management and the unions and all the sports agree upon is they do not want to put their athletes at risk. Obviously, from an owner's perspective with guaranteed contracts, they want to be careful with that. And from a player's union's perspective, they want to make sure they protect their athletes and don't get them back at a level of competition before they're ready for it, especially since most of them have not been working out in the same way they would normally work out in the team facilities and other more organized workouts. They've been more on their own. So that's another issue I think that both sides are concerned about. It is also interesting to see the hunger that there is out there for anything involving sports. We have ESPN broadcasting a, a documentary series about a basketball team that was playing 21 years ago, the 1998 Chicago Bulls. And then we have an extraordinary audience for the NFL draft. You can make an argument that the NFL draft is the most overrated media event in all of sports, but we had millions of people tuning in to watch Michael Jordan and to watch the NFL draft players. I was quite surprised by both of these. Well, you know, it's interesting. The NFL draft, I thought it was uh, interesting the way the league, despite a lot of pressure from outside sources to potentially cancel the draft or certainly delay it out a month or two. I thought it was very interesting that their advisors and obviously Commissioner Goodell being one of those decided to move forward with the event. Uh, There was a lot of uh, predicting uh, that there was going to be a disaster and there were going to be people going to interrupt the feed and whatnot. But it sort of went through, I think, almost flawlessly. And I think from a from a public relations point of view, it, it kind of depicted Commissioner Goodell in a more everyday kind of I'm a normal fan type perspective, even from the attire that he wore as the draft went on over the three days. Um, I thought it was interesting that, again, there is so much need for people who love sports to watch this. And it really became a focal point over those three days, you know, watching who the, you know, the 193rd pick is going to be became of a lot of interest on Saturday, which from a a prior year perspective really would not have had that much attention. So I think it was a great success for the league to move forward with the draft. I think the the fans were excited about it. And I think, again, as we talked about at the beginning of this this podcast, this concept of trying to get some normality back. And 
having the draft and talking about the new season and the new prospects coming in and joining the teams, I think got a lot of fans excited about what's in front of them and helped them for a few hours or a few days forget about all the negative news that we hear about on a daily basis about incurrence, uh, rising occurrence rather of these cases that we're hearing about across the country. I think the Chicago Bulls situation is fascinating because I think what it has done, obviously our generation, Lester, we, we appreciate and remember Michael Jordan uh, as the great incredible athlete that he was and probably still is, but also those great Bulls teams. But I think for another generation of young fans who are maybe in their, their early teens or late teens, or early 20s, an opportunity to see the incredible athleticism of Michael Jordan through videotape has really been kind of a, a, re, a reawakening uh, to the, the incredible talent that he possessed. And I think the success of that broadcast is, re, is really going to be interesting to see because I, I think there's going to be a bunch of copycats. I think Magic Johnson just announced yesterday uh, that he's going to be doing something similar. And I think Kobe Bryant, prior to his passing in his final year of play, had also authorized a film crew to follow him around during that final season. So I think Michael Jordan, again, being a trendsetter, uh, is going to be looked at as the leader, and he's going to be having a bunch of copycats follow along, again, because there's such an interest in, in broadcast relating to sports and some of these former NBA stars incredibly still have strong followings. It is amazing that Jordan figured out uh, how to do this. His timing could not have been better by an amazing series of coincidences his documentary is on the air at a time when there's absolutely no competition. He didn't plan it this way, but it came out that way, which is kind of typical of the whole narrative arc of Michael Jordan's uh, career. He had resisted the documentary uh, for years and finally decided to do it. And now, as you say, Greg, you see him in action. It's going to put a whole new dimension on the debate of who is the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron. Um, I, I, I'm in Chicago. I'm a Michael Jordan fan. I never thought LeBron was a factor, but now people can actually know what he has done. Uh, in the few minutes we have left... I was just going to say one other interesting point, Lester, is you know, from a timing point of view, I certainly think there's a whole generation, again, of, of fans and young players who wear Air Jordans and things like that and maybe didn't like our generation when I used to wear my Chuck Taylor Converse All-Stars. Didn't really know much about Chuck Taylor. And I think this new generation is going to find out a little bit more about who Michael Jordan is and was, uh, and not just as an owner of, a, of an NBA franchise. So it's going to be fun, fun to see the impact that this younger generation is going to be introduced to. Uh, by Michael Jordan through video and obviously very candid interviews. That is a wonderful point you make about the Chuck Taylor uh, shoes. How many pairs of Chucks did I go through? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> in the, in the uh, few minutes that we have, we have historic changes in the NCAA. The Board of Governors has now started a process that will lead to athletes being able to cash in on their names, images, and likenesses. This could be a radical change in the economics of college sports. And then more immediately, we have the prospect of no football and the loss of revenue uh, that that will create for athletic departments in the, uh, in the big football schools. What will be the impact if there is no college football, Greg? This, this could be the biggest disaster of this entire pandemic within the sports industry. You know, you're 100% right, Lester. I, 
I don't like to exaggerate, but I, I do like to uh, be straightforward. And I think the lack of football, the, the cancellation of the entire season would be catastrophic for college sports. And like I said, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that's just reality. You know, the revenue streams that colleges and universities are able to secure, predominantly from football, but also from basketball, to a certain degree, creates the revenue streams for these colleges and universities to be able to pay for and afford what I will call the non-revenue generating sports. So the loss of that revenue stream will really have a catastrophic effect. I do think that what's going to happen is you're going to see in football, especially at the NCAA level, I don't want to use the word delay, but I think it could happen uh, where you might see a delay in the season where they would push it back even as much as four weeks and literally have the season end with the bowl games and the national championship, perhaps the first weekend in March instead of late January, early February. Uh, you know, the big thing that that all the schools and the NCAA has maintained is that there will not be a return to collegiate sports until there is a return to the general student population to the campuses. That has been a little bit in flux over the last week. Now, just yesterday uh, and over the last couple of days, there have been a number of state schools here in Arizona, both Arizona State and the University of Arizona, have indicated that they intend to open their campuses for on-campus uh, class resumption in the fall. I believe the same thing has happened with the give or take 16 or 17 schools in the North Carolina State University system are also planning to open up for the fall. Again, we're seeing some of this momentum. Now, the, the concern you have is whether or not that momentum will end up running into a speed bump if there is a reoccurrence or a blip back up in some of these positive cases of the virus. So again, I think we're still a little bit early, but again, you are 100% right. The, the impact of losing football, especially at the collegiate level, would have drastic ramifications across the entire spectrum of the sports that are offered at the If you just look at uh, Ohio State University or at University of Texas, Austin, and you look at the revenue and the expenditures, those are two of the biggest athletic budgets in all of collegiate sports, if not the two top. And there, uh, 60% of the money comes in from football, from television, from tickets, from sponsorships, and it would be a killer for the rest of the budget. The NCAA is now responding to years of litigation and recent legislation that is encouraging the NCAA to allow payment to athletes for endorsing products, for signing autographs, for uh, being an influencer on social media. This could change things radically. A lot needs to be resolved. What will the role of agents be? Can this be used in recruiting? The good thing about this is it won't be in effect for another year and a half. But how do you view this? Is this the beginning of complete payment to athletes, or where are we on this, Greg? You know, again, that's a, that's the great point, Lester, about the complete payment to athletes. I do think that the NCA is going to really work hard to prevent a pay for performance or a pay for play model. Uh, you know, the NCA was initially severely criticized over the last couple of years for taking such a long time to react. And then the state of California obviously passed and Governor Newsom signed legislation, which authorizes uh, student athletes to receive money or endorsements for their name, image, and likeness. And now there's been a number of other states. Uh, Colorado most recently has signed it in Florida. It's going to be imminent with a signing of it. And that law is going to be effective July 1 of 2021, where the others are 2023. So the NCAA now in the last several hours, literally, is taking a lot of criticism 
as a result of this proposal that was presented from this uh, internal working group to the Board of Governors the other day. It was a 31-page document with ideas, suggestions. And again, it's a major step. And I think if we acknowledge that, it might not be where everybody wants to be yet, but it is a major step by the NCAA to acknowledging that student-athletes deserve the right in certain in certain ways to market themselves while they're still retaining their amateur status and ability to play at the NCAA level. There were some restrictions that are being proposed uh, specifically in that 31-page document that a lot of people are criticizing. Uh, but again, as you initially said, we still have a little bit of time here, and this was not the final bylaw modifications or amendments that we've been witnessing. These are initial proposals that the Board of Governors is going to consider and then literally over the next six or seven months, there's going to be a lot more dialogue and, and perhaps exchange of ideas, which might lead us to a much different finalization of the bylaw modifications come late January of 2021. So to me, if we view it in the right way, which is the NCA has taken a drastic step forward from their perspective, perhaps not as far from the perspective of others who would like to see a free open, open market for student athletes, uh, the NCA is not willing to go that far yet. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of still led, a lot of state legislation that's still going to be moving forward. And let's not forget the federal legislation aspect of this, which is watching very, very closely. We saw a lot of comments yesterday from state, uh, from rather from federal uh, representatives at the House level as well as on the Senate level, who are watching what the NCA is doing uh, and are going to be really closely monitoring the impact to see where this is going to take us. But from my perspective, this was a major step by the NCA that I know. Uh, just a few years ago, if you and I would have had this conversation, we probably would have laughed about the idea of student athletes being able to market their name, image, and likeness and still retain their ability to play. So major step forward. Is it far enough? We'll have to see the re the, the aspects of retaining uh, some type of limitations that the NCAA wants to do. Another thing, we're going to see how far that goes. But again, a major step nonetheless. And as we conclude uh, this series of podcasts, whoever would have expected uh, that we would be waiting for an epidemiologist, Anthony Fauci, to decide when sports can resume, and we'd be waiting on the Congress of the United States and governors and mayors all over the place to decide what can happen both in professional and college sports. This is an amazing intersection in the history of this industry. This concludes our series. Thank you, Greg for participating. This has been a wonderful thing for both of us to do for the Sports Lawyers Association. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lester. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in today. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts.